John chapter 7, picking up with where we left off two weeks ago, because again, Zach did a great job. I love the message on just uh, serving and growing in the Lord together. I don't remember the exact title, but I know it was uh, doing, doing the Christian life together or something along those uh, lines. But um, and I really appreciate it. I know he's out of town now. And, uh, but so we have to go two weeks back to the previous text. And we're picking up with where we left off in John chapter 7. Uh, we finished through John, 20, uh, John chapter 7, verse 24. I'm picking it up with verse 25. So if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We can put one in your hand, starting in verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know that when this man, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him. And he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him. And, he said, and they said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? And the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. Father, we ask again for the help of your spirit. I need your help, Lord. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak by your word. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray you'd use it, Lord, to transform lives. Those that are watching online, Lord, we pray that you'd speak to them. I pray, Father, that you would soften us by your word, comfort us, convict us, correct us, whatever is needed, and we ask it in the name of Jesus, Lord, I also ask that you'd remove me once again from the equation that we might hear from you, all of us, and be changed by it. In your name we pray. Amen. And by the way, those of you online, uh, good to see you as well. Last two times I've shared, there was no online. I want to say hi to you all as well. But uh, it's it. So in our text here, it's the middle of the week during the Feast of Tabernacles there in Jerusalem. It's right in the middle of that uh, festival week. And Jesus is standing in the temple. The temple, you remember, is this massive structure. It dwarfed all the, uh, the, the other buildings there in Jerusalem, just a massive structure. And that was the holy place where everybody uh, that was Jewish would come to worship the Lord, and especially these feasts uh, where they would have so many come from in, a, out of, uh, in from out of town. And there he's in the middle of a collection of souls that are drawn to him. Others are repelled by him. Some believe in him. 
Others don't believe in him. Just like, just like today, right? This is not, not new. Some believe in him, some don't believe, some have been drawn, some are like, I'll keep him away. Some love him. Do you love Jesus? Are you just kind of like, well, I, I'm saved. Love him. Though the disciples had come to love him. Some hate him. Some hate Jesus. Some people hate Jesus right now. I just prayed for those in North Korean uh, prisons or in China. Uh, it takes a lot of hate to put someone in jail just because of something they, they believe. It's a lot of hate. Someone him removed. And the debate about his ministry and his origin and where he's from and all that stuff, it just rages on and it will continue on all the way to the cross. But here in the text, remember two weeks ago, Jesus went in, he showed up in the middle of the week, uh, you know, everybody was surprised to see him, like, where is he? When's he going to show up? Is he going to show up at all? The brothers were like, well, last time we saw him in Galilee, he said he's coming at a different time. But here he is, continuing to speak. He's not done saying and proclaiming what he came to say and what everyone there needs to hear. You and I sometimes say things we're like, why did I say that? Can I reel that back in? Jesus never said something that he wished he didn't say. There's a lot of things that make Jesus different than us. He was born of a virgin. We weren't. He never said a single word, not even a uh, not even a little, a but, or an and, or a for, nothing that he didn't mean to say. You and I say things and we're like, oh man, I wish I hadn't said that. But every word that Jesus says has power to change a heart for eternity. If there's that humble heart of belief, that's what we all need. Remember our country is a very prideful nation. The reason we're so full of pride, or the reason why we have so many problems, pride leads to all kinds of other sin. If we have a humble heart to believe, it can change everything. And this, this crowd of people, they need to know that Jesus truly is the Christ. You see the, the title this morning, He is truly the Christ. Jesus either is the Christ or He's not the Christ. If He's not the Christ, then we should all leave right now and go to lunch early. If He is the Christ, we need to draw a little nearer to Him, Amen? draw a little bit nearer. Hear from him what he said then and what he's still saying now. I only have two points this morning I want to go through. Uh, the first one, uh, who he is. And I was telling the first, uh, the first service back at the 830 service, one thing about the Bible, and I, was, I shared this actually yesterday as well to the men down in uh, Yorktown. Take the New Testament for example. This is also true of the Psalms. For, uh, there's, a, there's other passages this would make uh, the same case. But take the New Testament. You have uh, Matthew through Revelation. Uh, there's a lot of repetition in the New Testament. For example, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You might read the same story three times, two or three times in some of them, and a couple, uh, one case, there's, it's in four Gospels. But there's a lot of repetition. Say, didn't I read this over in Luke? Didn't I read this over in Yes, you did, probably did. Uh, there's similar stories told from a different vantage point. There's a lot of repetition in Paul's writings. If you could take all the repetition of the New Testament out, you could shrink the whole thing down to a small amount. So the question is, why does God have so much when it could have been shrunk down much smaller? The Psalms are this way. You could shrink the whole Psalms 
to a much smaller collection of writing. David repeats many things. Why? Because God knows we need to hear it again and again and again. And Jesus in his ministry would repeat things again and again and you're like, if you, you can start to see why because the people are not hearing. You ever talk to someone that you felt was a brick wall? This is Jesus to the world. And so as he would come he would continue to, to say these things and we'll see some repetition all throughout uh, the 21 chapters of John. But you'll recall back in verse 20, you've got to go two weeks back in the previous text, which was verses 10 through 24. But back in verse 20, there was a vocal group among the people who said to Jesus, they looked at Jesus and he said, you have a demon, who in the world is trying to kill you? They didn't understand what he was talking about. These were the out-of-town pilgrims that had come and they had no idea that there was a death sentence on Jesus' head. They were either unaware of the leader's intentions or perhaps they had heard it and they were now willfully ignorant. But I I really believe they just were unaware uh, because I believe they were the out-of-towners. But anyway, uh, you have others among the people, um, the same group of people, um, who are saying right here in verse 25, now some of them from Jerusalem, is this not he uh, he whom they seek to kill? So you have others here... um, and John identifies who they are, they actually do believe that there's people trying to kill Jesus and that there's an intention to kill Jesus. And John identifies who they are. They are the Jewish people where? It's right in the text. From Jerusalem. They're not the out-of-towners. They're not the people that traveled from New York and Boston and Miami here to Richmond. If, if, If Richmond was our Jerusalem, right? They are not from these other places. So that makes sense that they would have a better understanding of the religious leaders. Where were all the religious leaders headquartered? In Jerusalem. The high priest and the other members of the Sanhedrin and others. But for the locals, um, the local Jewish people, uh, not the Jewish pilgrims that would be coming in for the feast, um, the locals had heard and would have more knowledge of what was going on with the religious leaders. They hadn't forgotten what started the animosity towards Jesus and his um, uh, and the influence that he was having. They hadn't forgotten that the ultimate goal was to kill Jesus and to eliminate his influence. These local Jewish residents, they were more in tune with reality. When Jesus had questioned the leaders and their desire make it their outright fixation with killing him uh, when he actually asked them the question, uh, I believe it's back in verse 19, why do you seek to kill me? Again, this is going two weeks back. Uh, They understood, the local Jewish people understood why he said that. They're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. We're aware. The out-of-town Jewish people, it did not make sense to them. Who's trying to kill you? By the way, in just about any setting, There are those that are aware of the realities and there are some that are not aware of the the realities of things. But once everyone has been made of the realities and specifically in Jesus' case the truth, because whatever Jesus says is truth, right? Whatever he says is true then there comes a decision. We can either ignore it or we can respond correctly. Which in the case of Jesus is if we see that the hatred towards Jesus is what the Bible would say it is, it's sin. 
the hatred of Jesus is sin. These leaders are supposed to be righteous men, but they're really hateful, sinful men that hate the Lord. And that's what it is. Now the desire of the leaders to kill Jesus is of course directly related to who he is. Who he says he is and who Jesus says he is is precisely who he is. Amen? Who he, whatever he says of himself is exactly true. But their desire to kill him is related to who they think he is. Or who they think he isn't. And it gives us a view of their hearts. As I mentioned, like North Korea or uh, China imprisoning people, just this week they rounded up a whole group of pastors again, crushed a whole bunch of churches again. They hate, and you see some of this in the Middle East, you see it in Iran, you see it in parts of Africa, where they'll slaughter a whole village. Just hatred. Why? Hatred of Jesus, and it's a hatred that comes from darkness. In Ephesians 4.18 it says, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. The blindness of their heart. God gives life. He, gives, he brings us out of darkness. If you ever wonder why, man, I'm, I'm talking to these this individual, or you see someone on the news and you're like, um, you know, this is a great one lately. I see people that are, again, I, like I said earlier, I'm not for or against the vaccine, for example. I, I really can have a very open, good discussion about why it's good and why this, this is a risk, why this is not a risk, all these understandings, and have a very adult conversation but I'll also pe hear people say some, some crazy stuff like you have someone who totally is all in with abortion telling someone else they're a murderer. Let me get this straight. The killing of unborn babies is literally, literally murder, and you can't see that. But you think something else, it's a far cry from that is unconscionable, right? Well, the reason why is our hearts, when our hearts are darkened, we, have, we, we create our own little constructs. And worse than that, the priesthood there in Jerusalem, not only had they created their own little power structure that they wanted to hold on to, they looked at Jesus as a threat to all of that. And so they tell themselves things that they believe because Satan is the father of lies, and if you're in darkness, he will help you stay in darkness. And the local Jewish residents, they're fully aware of the religious leaders' intense opposition to Jesus. Intense opposition to Jesus. You and I, we can use a phrase of speech like, oh, you're killing me. But in this case, they really want to kill Jesus. Not, it's not just a figure of speech. They truly have that intense desire, and the local residents are aware of it. And so as Jesus arrives and comes into this temple, the massive temple, and he stands there and teaches in these throngs of crowds that are there uh, for the Feast of Tabernacles, and they see him confront, Jesus confronts the religious leader's hypocrisy 
the residents begin to wonder out loud. Remember, these are the local Jewish people that are fully aware of the plot to kill Jesus. They say in verse 26, but look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. They're rather surprised. They're like, you guys have talked a big game. You've talked that you're going to kill him as soon as you see him. He's here, he's talking, and you haven't killed him yet. What gives? They see all this. They're like, and then they, they begin to wonder aloud, do the leaders really know that Jesus is the Messiah? That's a good question. Maybe they really do know he's God and they want to fight against God. A lot of people have shaken their fist at God. Atheists will do this, for example. If there's no God, why are you shaking your fist towards the heavens? Why don't you just act like there's no God? That he really is the one that Scripture's foretold. They're wondering, do the leaders know this? Do they really know that he is sent from God? Now you can imagine the leaders hearing this. They're not going to like that. But as the local residents continue to wonder aloud, they remind themselves and everyone else that Jesus, he's bold. He speaks with authority. He clearly has an anointing upon him. But then they recall, but we know where he's from. He's from Galilee. The Messiah, we're not going to know where the Messiah is from, so how can he be the Messiah? We know he's from Galilee. We even know he's from Nazareth in Galilee. Right? That would be like saying Chester in Chesterfield. Right? We know exactly where he's from. So the Messiah, we're not going to know exactly where he's from. That was problematic with the Galileans as well, remember? They're like, we know his parents. But yet they can see the fingerprints and the authority of God in his ministry. They can see the words that Jesus speaks come with power. And yet they struggled. The Galileans did as well. Those were Jesus' uh, brethren there in the northern part of Israel. They struggled with the fact that he's Mary and Joseph's son. And he's from Nazareth. How can a common Galilean carpenter be the promised Messiah? There's not, that, there's not a whole lot of royalty in the Galilean carpenter. How can he be the promised one? How can he be the son of God? And as they're pondering Jesus' origin, Jesus speaks loud enough for everyone to hear. Look what it says in your, in your Bible in verse 28. Then Jesus cried out, there's no microphones. So there's a massive crowd, and Jesus speaks really loud. I was telling a guy yesterday, Charles Spurgeon used to tell, uh, used to tell men that uh, in London, this is the 1800s, if a man didn't have a voice that projected, <laughs> you told him they weren't called to preach. <laughs> he said, you might be called to something. But it's not that. Uh, and to Jesus, we know had a voice. And here he is in the temple, and when he cries out, he's loudly proclaiming that everyone can hear. Listen to what he says. You both know me, and you know where I'm from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me Mike Drop. That's what he says. He knows their thoughts. He hears the murmuring. He hears all of that. And he says, he cries out with a 
much louder voice than I did. He speaks with this loud, bold voice. You know where I'm from. Almost all Bible scholars see both the simplicity and the complexity of what Jesus says in that statement, you know where I'm from. That initial statement from Jesus. Um, I agree with Dr. Henry Morris who, um, who says, and a lot of other scholars believe this as well, that it's almost, he says it's almost certainly, the statement is almost certainly ironical. As if Jesus is saying to them with a loud voice, so you know where I'm from. In other words, so you really all think, because remember they all say, Nazareth, Galilee. So you really all know where I'm from. I see this statement I put up on the screen as multidimensional um, from Jesus. Did I forget to put that verse up? Oh, there we go. There we go. Uh, I see this statement from Jesus as multidimensional. Uh, number one, they would know that he's from Galilee. And that's true. He grew up now, remember his early childhood was not Galilee. His early childhood was in Egypt. They'd escaped Egypt. From Egypt, Joseph and Mary come back. After Herod dies, then they come back to Nazareth. And that's where he is raised. And that would be his childhood. He follows in his father's footsteps. His father's a carpenter. He does the same work as his father's a carpenter all the way to the age of 30. Everyone in that area would have known that. Number two... If they know the scriptures, they'll know he's originally not from Nazareth. He's from Bethlehem, which was prophesied. He's originally from Bethlehem. And how would they be able to ascertain that? Mary, where did you have delivery? Was it Johnston Willis or was it Chippenham? I'm, I'm contemporizing, right? Mary, did you give birth in Nazareth or was it another city? It was most assuredly Bethlehem because a census was given and Joseph and I had to travel to the city of our birth and even though we raised him in Nazareth, he was actually born in Bethlehem. And we didn't stay there that long because we had to escape Herod. And then we went to Egypt and then we went back to Nazareth after all that. Oh, well, we don't believe you. But that's what, that's what she would have said if they would have asked her. Mary was still alive. She was still at the cross even all the way then. Number three, if they know the scriptures, they'll know that Jesus matches the prophecies. Matches the prophecies of Isaiah. He would come and heal people. He did. Touch the brokenhearted. He did. That there would be one crying out the wilderness. That was John the Baptist. He would fulfill the prophecies. So again, the picture was clear. In one hand, Jesus can say at the same time, Something ironic, something tongue-in-cheek, and also something very direct. You do know where I'm from, you just choose not to know. You stop up. You remember when they stoned Stephen? It says they stop up their ears. Literally. They just don't want to hear it anymore. And I think there's an element of that certainly going on here with Jesus. It's as, as, as if to say to the people gathered there in Jerusalem, and, and this is me just paraphrasing, deep, deep down inside, in your heart you're convicted. 
in your heart you're convicted. I remember uh, before I came to Christ, I would sit there, me and my wife would sit there for like a year going to church, and we knew we were unsaved, but we would come, and we kind of would like it, and kind of would not like it at the same time. We're conflicted is the word. And Jesus, I believe, knows that deep down in their hearts, they're convicted. They know the facts line up. They know that the signs are unmistakable. They know the signs are powerful. They know he's the Messiah. But the question is, will they believe he's the Messiah? And Jesus continues restating his commission uh, and his heavenly origin. And again, loudly and with no ambiguity, there's no minced words. He's in Jerusalem. He's in the temple. It's the exact same place where his brothers had just challenged him, saying, why don't you go do all you do in Jerusalem? Remember? They kind of had that mocking tone, and there he is speaking there in the temple in the presence of the Jewish residents, in the presence of all the Jewish pilgrims that have come from around the uh, Roman Empire, the known world at that time, and in front of the religious leaders, and Jesus does not flinch. How many of us would be bold enough to know there's a death sentence on us, and there's a massive crowd, and the high priests have their own police force and officers, which are actually mentioned in the text here. How many of us say, I'm going to go there and preach my heart out right in front of them? No, most of us would be like, I'm, I'm going on a long vacay somewhere else. Jesus doesn't flinch. He goes right there. And he affirms he is sent from the Father, that he is sent from the one that is true. They don't know the one who sent him. He says, and you don't know him. They don't know the one who sent him. Now think about that statement. What a statement. They all know who God is. Why in the world are they in Jerusalem right now anyway? For the Feast of Tabernacles. They're there to worship Yahweh. They're there to worship God. And Jesus says, you're here to worship God and you don't even know him. That's, a, that's quite an arrow to the heart, isn't it? He says, you don't know him. Time out. The whole reason we're at the temple is we love God. Jesus says, you don't know God. I know who the president is, but I don't know him. I don't know Joe Biden. I know who he is. I know who certain NFL players are, but I don't know them. I know who they are. And this is the big problem there in the temple. A lot of the people there know who God is. They don't know God. This is the problem with many Americans. They know who God is. They just don't know God. They know who he is. They don't know him. Big difference. They don't know God the Father because the relationship comes through his son, Jesus. And so the same crowd having this ping-pong debate in their mind. Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? Finally reason among themselves. Some of them say, will the Messiah do more than this? Will he do more than heal thousands, feed thousands, preach such truth that convicts our hearts, uh, put the priests in a place where they can neither say one way or the other on anything? And many do believe in him. And the resistant leaders are starting to boil at this point. They're starting to seethe all over again. Remember they had the cool down period when Jesus went up to Galilee for that extended period, what I believe is was the summer period. They had that cool down period, but now they're seething once again. And they have a mind to grab hold of him. It even says right here in the text, look back 
at your Bibles in verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because the, his hour had not yet come. Um, they have a mind to grab hold of him, but nobody does. Everything is in God's time. It's like they want to do something and something is restraining them. And it's the same thing happening in the world right now. This world would go abs- You think it's crazy right now? If the Holy Spirit let go of what, some of the things he's restraining, you would not feel safe in any place on this earth. Did you know the Bible says in the, in the book of Revelation someday the animals, uh, part of the, one of the curses is going to be many people are going to be killed by the beast of the earth. You think it's crazy? If God released the animals to no longer have a fear of humans, you wouldn't even want to see a squirrel. <laughs> you seen how they bite through a, uh, like an acorn like it's nothing? I'm not kidding. I mean, my point is, my point is, they wanted to make a move, and something was restraining them. This also, also to give you a little bit of peace to know that God has protected you many times. You didn't even know it. There was a trail of protection and around you that you didn't even see or didn't know. Jesus was protected here by the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit. They wanted to grab hold of Him, but they couldn't grab hold of Him. And there's times where the enemy wanted to grab hold of you and me and can't. Isn't that great to know? Because we have the same Holy Spirit living in us that was restraining there. But it's all in God's timing. Last point. I only have two points, so this is both the second point and the last point. In verses 32-36 we see um, Jesus is going to tell about that he's headed somewhere. And we see him say um, right here in verse 33, I shall be with you a little while longer that I go to him who sent me, verse 34, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am going you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he, where does he intend to uh, go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is the thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, where I am going you cannot come? Now the dispersion of the Jews, remember Israel used to be one country under King David and under Solomon, right? Under Saul, then David, then Solomon. It was one country. And then you had, after Solomon's death, the country splits. You have the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom gets carried away by who? The Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was the first to just take them purposefully and move entire families, in fact, entire villages, and plop them somewhere else in the Middle East, up into Turkey, over into you know, Lebanon, which would be modern-day Lebanon, and all that area is Phoenicia back then. But all of that happened under the Assyrians, and then you had the, the southern kingdom, which is Judah and Benjamin, carried away by Babylon. Then, then they were actually under the Persians, under the Greeks, and ultimately the Roman Empire. And they also dispersed the Jewish people, and you had Jews that ended up, uh, ended up living in Africa, Ethiopia, Alexandria, Libya, uh, all the way on the northern side of the Mediterranean, uh, um, Italy and Greece, and they mentioned Greece here. So there was many synagogues. When Paul would later come to Christ, when he would go, what would he find all over Greece and all over Turkey, which was called Asia Minor then? Synagogues, because those were the Jewish dispersion. And Jesus had done his entire ministry where? In Israel. That's where he came, to the lost house of Israel. So that's what they're thinking. They're like thinking, well, maybe he's going to go and expand his influence in Greece and find other people there. We'll come back to that point in just a second. But the Pharisees, who are experts in the law, 
they hear some of the people moving from a place of doubt and discourse to a firm decision uh, that they hear in this crowd. Remember Jesus has just done this mic drop moment of here's who I am. And the Father has sent, or he doesn't say the Father, he said the one who sent me. Uh, but many are coming to believe that Jesus really is the promised Messiah. And they conclude that they can't wait any longer. They can't wait any longer because it says in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring. Go back to verse 32. They heard the uh, crowd murmuring the things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they huddled together and they said, get the police force. Go lock him up. Lock him up and shut him up. So they send, they have their own police force. They have the same officers that will arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane later. Same, same officers. The priests had their, their own detachment of troops. And the officers, uh, they're sent to grab him and arrest him. The officers apparently go and do exactly as they're instructed, and then nothing happens. They go to arrest him, and they either decide they can't or won't, they're confounded, and Jesus throws this, what seems like a riddle out to everybody, I'll be with you a little longer, then I'll be gone. And apparently that's enough to stop the, the officers like, what do we make of this? What do we do with this? Their intent is stopped, it's diffused, or it just dissolves. Again, I believe this is the invisible work of the Holy Spirit again. The restrainer just stops it. And aside from no one being able to accomplish the command to capture Jesus, he confounds everybody uh, which seems like a riddle to them, but it really shouldn't have been a riddle to them. It shouldn't have been a riddle. He actually is very clear with what he says. Based on the totality of what he said, they should have understood exactly what he was saying. But they latch on to one part, and they're blinded to the full statement. And sometimes you and I are talking to people, and uh, those of you online as well, sometimes you'll be talking to someone about the Lord, and they'll miss what you're really saying, and latch on to one little thing and want to go on a rabbit trail. It's kind of what happens here. But Jesus pivots here from what he said about you do not know me, and he pivots here and he talks about his rapidly approaching destination. He says... I'm going to be with you just a little while longer. A little while longer. We understand that summer is just a little while longer, right? But that doesn't mean it's over by tomorrow. But when we say a little while longer, we understand that's a few more weeks. A little while longer. Now Jesus, you understand the course of his life. He's in about the 31st year of his life. He has how many years of his life left? Two on earth. So when he says a little while longer, the two-thirds of his ministry... But only two of his 33 years remain. A little while longer. He doesn't tell them exactly what that means, but he'll be leaving, and where he's going, nobody will be able to find him. You and I can fly from here to Paris or from here to Tokyo, but we can't take an airplane to heaven. Right? We don't even know where it is. We know what it is, but we don't know where it is. Jesus says, you can't get there, not without my help, clearly. From our perspective today, this is now, for us, 
understand where he is, not where he's going, because we know he is seated at the right hand of the Father. But for them, it was where he was going. He hadn't gone back there yet. But notice here the full proclamation again. that Jesus says, I'll be with you a little while longer, then I'll go to him who sent me. Keep that in mind. I'll go to him who sent me. In other words, soon I'll be leaving. Doesn't give that exact time frame. But at any rate, the portion of his statement, they brush aside, they brush aside where he says, I'll go to the one who sent me, and they're like almost, okay, whatever. He tells them where he's going. He tells them, I'm returning to the one who sent me. Now remember, all of the disdain for Jesus, all of the hatred of uh, him still originally stems from his clearing the temple at Passover, and then from there, healing. But he also drove them bananas when he told them he was from the Father. That incensed everyone. On that return trip, which I believe Pentecost, which is the second of the three feasts, uh, that three, three feasts all the Jewish males were required to attend, unleavened bread, Pentecost, Feast of Tabernacles, that's the, the middle one if it was Pentecost, although John doesn't say exactly, so if it wasn't Pentecost, it's possible, but I believe it was. But he heals a man on the Sabbath, they were outraged. And then right after that, he claimed to be the son of God, that God was his father. And that was the final straw. That was when they said, he must die. It's not a matter of if, it's when. You know, maybe if he retracted his statement, but that wasn't going to happen. Remember, Jesus doesn't say something he doesn't mean. He doesn't have to. There's never one that he wants to take back, so he meant it, and they knew he meant it, and they wanted him to die, and he stated at that time that he had come from God the Father. And they know who our God the Father lives, even though it's true that God is everywhere. Amen? We all agree with that. God is everywhere. We also know it's true. It's in the book of Daniel. Jesus himself would say, my Father who art in heaven. We know God sits on a throne in heaven, although he's, is he on a throne or is he everywhere? Yes. Right? One of those yes statements again. But he does sit on a throne in heaven. And the Jewish people know that. They know Yahweh has his throne in heaven. Jesus was very clear back in John chapter 5. Look on the screen again. John 5, 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice nor see his form. And they would know this is true, that no one could look at God and live. But Jesus said, I came from the Father, and I'm going back to the Father. So Jesus has clearly stated where he's going. He says, the one who sent me, I'm going back to. He didn't say, I'm going back to Athens. Is that clear? He did not say, I'm going back to Greece. He said, I'm going back to the one who sent me. But all this goes over their head, right past their hearts. They're fixated with him going where they can't find him. And they're thinking, well, maybe he's going to go from town to town in Greece, from synagogue to synagogue, and maybe over then Rome, and maybe over there to Gaul, which would be modern-day France, and continue to go from place to place to each synagogue and win the hearts of the people like he's trying to do here and build his following and also escape us 
all at the same time. The world always thinks that we think just like them. Once you've been changed by Jesus, they don't understand why you think the way you think now. But that's what they're thinking. Things along that. Maybe he'll go and visit these Jewish communities and but Jesus said he was returning the one who sent him, whose throne is in heaven. Jesus didn't say I'm returning to the Mediterranean Peninsula. Obviously, in their minds, they've already discounted, oh yeah, yeah, sure, you're from heaven. The, what, what I perceive here is like, we don't believe you're from heaven, we believe you're delusional, but we do believe you want to build your little kingdom, so maybe you're going over to Greece, maybe you're going to hide from us over there, that's what you're probably going to do. We know you're from Galilee. So they ignore the essence of what Jesus is saying. They're so earthly-minded, they, they think in terms of what they've acquired, the positions and power they've gained in life, which is oftentimes through manipulation, and they attempt to stop Jesus. They also apply their thinking to his thinking, that he's trying to stay alive, that he's trying to escape their net. Did you know Jesus is not trying to escape them? We all agree with that, right? He's already walked right into the middle of them and preached when there's a death sentence on him, they have their officers, and they still can't even figure out why the officers haven't arrested him. We know, because God was just kind of diffusing it all. But they would think how they could avoid uh, being caught. But actually, Jesus is pressing to the cross. He still has the rest of his ministry to finish. He's not going to try and outmaneuver them. In fact, at the third year mark, he's going to come and present himself right into their murderous hands. Amen? He's not going to avoid the cross. He's going to go to it. They think he's trying to gain worldwide influence. He's absolutely not trying to gain world in, worldwide influence. Uh, he's come to this small, ancient, but critical place on planet Earth known as the Holy Land, the household of Israel, the place that God gave to Abraham and the patriarch. And that's where he was sent to preach and teach, although he did skirt up into what would be modern-day Lebanon and over into Syria, uh, which all that was given to Abraham as well, if you look at the whole of uh, the promise. But that's where he's come. He's not going anywhere else. He's already told them everything they need to know but all of this, and I'm going to bring this to a close here, all of this that Jesus says, it's also a warning to us. You know how earthly-minded the Pharisees and the religious leaders were, but it's a warning to us not to be earthly-minded. Because I believe Jesus is also raising the level of the disciples here as well. Uh, when he says to them, where I am going, you cannot come, it's a good reminder to the disciples and us. This world was not Jesus' home. And it's not mine either. Amen? And it's not yours. And those of you online, if you're saved and you're born again, this world is not your home. I don't care how awesome it is on an island in the Seychelles. This world is not your home. It wasn't the disciples' home. It wasn't Jesus' home. It's not our home either. But Jesus has a mission to complete and then he's going to send back into heaven. And that's true of the disciples. 
They all will have a mission to complete. Some of them will be shorter. John will outlive all the other. His mission is the longest one. We believe John lives to be almost, if not over 100. We all have a mission to complete, and then guess what? It's over. Those of you that are older, you already know your life's but a vapor. You think some of the, old, some of the young people here, they think when they see their grandparent, they can't remember high school or anything. Yes, they can. <laughs> it was like it was yesterday. Life, you have a short mission here, and then it's home to heaven. Jesus, we know his was short, 33 years. But in a sense, everybody's is short. Everybody's, and so it's a good reminder to us that we have this mission, and then it's on to heaven, if provided, provided that you believe Jesus is truly the Christ. Amen? That's the big if. I mean, provided that you really believe he's the Christ. And if he really is the Christ, uh, brother and sister, do you believe that he's worthy of our fully surrendered lives? If he's given us eternal life, I would say he's more than worthy of that. And if he really is the Christ, here's some really good news too. He is over your little crisis or big crisis right now that you're going through. Isn't that great to know? If some of us have some crises that are big, medium, large, small, five at the same time, right? The world is in crisis, but he's over that too. If he's truly the Christ, he's over all of these things. And if he's truly the Christ, he'll bring us through these things. Amen? To complete our mission and to join him in heaven because it is temporary here. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you again that you did send your son, your only begotten son, as, as you said in John chapter 3. And Lord, we're, we're glad that when Jesus came, he spoke the truth that we needed to hear, not the truth we might think we want, but the truth that you know we need. And Lord, you truly are the Christ. You really are the one born in Bethlehem of a virgin. You really are the one the prophet spoke of. You really are the one that has walked on water. You are the one that's raised the dead, and you're finally the one that raised your own life. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And Lord, uh, for all of us, Lord, if we haven't done it lately, Lord, we want to re-surrender as your disciples. That we finish the mission and join you when, whether that's 100 or 10 months from now or 10 days from now, Lord, you know what each of our lifespan will be. But Lord, we want to be heavenly minded, not earthly minded during this time. And before we close in worship, I just want to speak, if there's anyone here, uh, that the whole reason Jesus came was to fulfill the mission, complete the mission, and if and when he had completed that, then and only then could anyone have access to the Father through his precious blood and the work of salvation. That's why he came. All this was the leading up to the cross. All this was bringing it to the crescendo of the cross and then finally the resurrection three days later when he raised from the dead. This wasn't really a salvation message. It was really putting in context exactly what Jesus said in this Feast of, uh, Feast of Tabernacles week. But if there's anyone here, and I'm speaking to those of you online as well, if you today for the first time in your life say, I really believe he is 
not just the Christ, but I want him to be my personal Christ, my personal Lord and Savior. I want to believe in him and to have him save me and cleanse me and deliver me from my sin, guilt, the future of death and hell. And I want to have that home in heaven with him where Jesus is right now just waiting for God to give the word to come back and collect his church. He said, I want to I be forgiven and know that I have the same destination of heaven. Raise your hand if there's anyone here. I want to pray with you. I, I don't want to assume everyone is a believer. I don't want to assume everyone's put their faith in Christ. I can't see those of you online. So if there's someone watching online, I want to I'm going to say a prayer and you can pray it with me. It's not my words. It's you speaking to God from your heart. But if there's anyone, you just pray, Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for preaching the everlasting gospel that I needed to hear. And I have heard it. And Lord, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. For I've decided this day to follow you, Jesus, and to believe in you, and to put my faith and trust in you. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and that I will follow you with your help all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you did that, send us a note at questions at calvarychapelrva.com. We would love to be able to follow up with you. Why don't you stand as we close in worship?